grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I spent a lot of time in Genesis and the opening chapters of Exodus over the last few months, both in the classroom with the third, fourth, and fifth graders, and then also in chapel as well. One of the things that seems to come up, especially I see things online, is that a lot of people have misunderstandings about the Old Testament saints. One example I've given in Bible study recently is, sometimes you'll see these lists of all these sins of the Old Testament saints, and they'll say things like, Moses was a murderer. When actually the Bible says the opposite of that, that what he did was a good thing. He was actually defending his people. He was starting to act like the deliverer God had called him to be. And then we have Jacob, who I think perhaps is one of the most misunderstood Old Testament saints. We know a lot about his life, like here and there. Like we, we know that he and Esau didn't get along. But oftentimes we interpret what happened with Esau through the lens of Esau, not actually through the lens of Jacob. And it was certainly not sinless, but the overarching theme of Genesis with Jacob is that Jacob is faithful. That he's doing what God has called him to do. That he actually believes and trusts God's promises. Even when his father didn't. Even when his brother didn't. I think part of this comes about because there's a really bad mistranslation that's come about in English, I think, starting with the King James Version. That usually happens and then trickles down to everything else. There's a verse comparing Esau and Jacob, and it says in your English, almost every English Bible, that Jacob was a mild man. And then here's what happens. You'll pick up on that, and they kind of run with that in all kinds of crazy directions. So I've heard things like, well, Jacob, like, Esau was like a guy's guy. He liked to hunt and do all this stuff. And Jacob, though, he kind of like, he was kind of girly, and he liked to stay at home with his mom. It's not what the text says. Nowhere does it say that. In fact, the word that's translated mild for Noah, do you know how we translate that word? That Noah was perfect in his generation. Noah was righteous. The same author, Moses, wrote that about Noah. He wrote this about Jacob. And it has the idea of not, again, being perfect as in sinless, but as one who is faithful. As one who is complete and mature because they believe the promises. In fact, you see this throughout Jacob's life. Whether it's Jacob and Isaac and their relationship, whether it's Jacob and Esau, or even Jacob and Laban. We'll look at all three of those relationships in just a second. But I think it's important to notice about Jacob because what happens in our chapter is so significant and so important. If you don't think you understand who Jacob is, or where he's coming from, or how he got there, that it can seem a little odd, and you might misunderstand what's going on. The immediate thing that happened in our chapter is after 20 years, he finally leaves being under Laban's household, sets off on his own. Laban chases after him because Laban's mad, especially because Rachel had stolen the household idols and also Jacob had taken everything he was supposed to take and Laban didn't like this one bit. In fact, God comes to Laban and says, look, leave him alone. Don't say anything good or bad to him. You're not, that is, you're not to judge him. You leave him alone. So after that, after that fun event, now he's going a little further. He's about ready to enter into the land of his inheritance, the land promised to him. 
And he hears that Esau's coming with 400 men. If you remember, his last meeting with Esau did not go so well. In fact, the whole reason he leaves to go find a wife is because his mom's like, look, you need to get away for a while, and hopefully Esau will finally calm down. Well, this is 20 years later. And now Esau comes out with 400 men, and he's beginning to wonder what's going on. So he starts to divide up his family. He sends a ton of gifts ahead of him. But there he is, all alone, as everyone's going on ahead of him, beside that river. He's scared. He's alone. And oh, by the way, he's 97 years old. Not sure about what's going to happen with Esau. So that's kind of the setup. So as he's there, he starts to wrestle with a man. I think it's helpful to perhaps try to, as Luther says, use our sanctified imaginations and try to maybe go through some things perhaps that Jacob was thinking as this wrestling match went on and on throughout the night. Perhaps he thought it was his father Isaac. Now Isaac at this time was 157, but he was a spry 157. He was no weakling. He's got 23 more years to go. However, he was blind. So perhaps Jacob thought, it's my dad and he's attacking me at night because he can use the darkness to his advantage. Maybe he's thinking, man, I've been wrestling with my dad for nearly 57 years now. If you don't remember, Isaac took Esau aside. And not for good reasons. Isaac was rejecting the promises of God. Until Rebekah and Jacob trick him into giving, giving the blessing to Jacob, and then he snaps out of it. He does actually repent. We see this at the end of that chapter, beginning of the next one, where it explains with Jacob, um, Jacob's blessings that he receives from his father. So perhaps, though, he thinks maybe his dad's changed his mind. It had been a long, patient, bitter struggle with his dad, and maybe he thought it was starting all over again. Perhaps he thought his dad's there to stop him from gaining the inheritance. That maybe after these 20 years, he finally gave it to Esau anyway. Perhaps he just thought, I wish my dad would leave me alone. Why do I have to wrestle my own father? But as the night wears on, he realizes, there's no way it can be dad. He's 157. He's not going to make it all through the night wrestling with me. Oh, so it must be Esau. Esau didn't come out with 400 men just to kind of greet me in a friendly manner. You don't do that. You don't bring 400 men to welcome me home. He's taking advantage of the situation. Our conflict started in the womb. We've been struggling with each other for 97 years. And here it still goes on. I tried to bribe him. I sent all the gifts ahead, but apparently that wasn't enough. Here he is, wrestling with me, trying to stop then he hears that his people, his camp, that went ahead of him, is not being attacked. So then maybe he thinks it's Laban. Laban is a wicked man. I mean, if you, if you read the text carefully, Laban's not a good guy. His uncle abuses Jacob's both love for Rachel and his poverty, and he treats him like a slave. And in fact, Laban tells satanic lie after satanic lie, and so, even though in the previous chapter, Laban said, okay, you can go your way, Jacob probably thought, well, it's not like Laban's ever kept his word to me, not once. Maybe he's finally come to defeat me, take back his daughters and all his possessions. He doesn't want me 
to receive the inheritance either. And yet, it couldn't have been any of these three. And indeed, it wasn't. It's revealed that the one he is wrestling with is not a man at all, but it's indeed the angel of the Lord. That is, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ is there wrestling with him. And our Lord touches the socket of his hip, puts his hip out of joints. And Jesus says to him, let me go, for the day is about to break. And Jacob, though, will not let go. He clings to him and says, I will not let go unless you bless me. And then our Lord does something odd. He says, what's your name? My name is Jacob. It's not Jacob anymore. Your name is now Israel. Now, Jacob's name means one who supplants, we could add, by wrestling, the theme of his life. And then Israel means one who strives with God by wrestling. So then the question comes, quite an important question, why is God doing this? What is going on in the scene? What is happening here? Is Jacob wicked, as some have kind of said? Is God trying to bring him to his knees in repentance? Well, that cannot be because God says that Jacob prevails. And he blesses him there. What is going on is that Jacob is indeed righteous. That is, he's clung to God's promises by faith. And he's matured in that faith over his 97 years. God made promises to him. And just that very day, right before the wrestling match, Jacob had wrestled with God in prayer, and he had prayed to God on the foundation of those promises and said, please work all this out with Esau. Please keep me safe. Keep my family safe. Watch over us. That is, he clung to the promises and wrestled with God in prayer shortly before the wrestling match. And that indeed is the point that is the message of this wrestling match. It was God who had raised up Isaac and Esau and Laban to wrestle all these years with Jacob. Why? Because God was training Jacob. He was making him strong. He was testing him to strengthen him. And that indeed is the point of the wrestling match with God himself is that God is there to strengthen him for what lies ahead. He's preparing him. He's not there to do him in. He's not there to cause him problems. He is there, as Luther says, as a father who plays with his children. Right? Think about it. Think about a dad wrestling with his son. The father is stronger. But yet, he doesn't want to just crush his son. Right? It's not like he just wants to defeat him right away so the son doesn't learn anything from it. He plays with the son. He lets the son get some advantages, and yet then he ends up defeating him. But each step of the way, this wrestling match is for training, it's for maturing, for preparing hands for battle. The goal is indeed that Jacob will become strong and mighty in wisdom and discernment. That's the goal. The goal for him was for him over all these years was to become strong enough to wrestle with God and prevail. Exactly what happens. Now, does this mean that Jacob could now dominate God? Is that what's going on here? I mean, that'd be ridiculous. That could never be the case. 
right? Had our Lord Jesus wanted to, he could have stopped the wrestling match in a second. But in fact, it meant the opposite. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He fought with the Lord, he wrestled with the Lord, not to be over God, but to be in submission under God. To be under his rule and authority and blessing. Jacob was aware of his unworthiness. He was aware of his need for God's blessing. And so he wrestled and fought all night long because he knew that's what he needed. And he would not let go until he got what he needed. This is not just true for Jacob. This is a repeated pattern throughout Scripture. In fact, we have it in our Gospel reading. In our Gospel reading, we have the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus, and Jesus does the same thing. He's teaching her how to wrestle with him. Right? He seems aloof. He seems kind of cold to her. Go away. I'm not here for you. You don't deserve anything. It's not right for me to take the food and give it to little dogs. And yet, each step of the way, she continues to wrestle, and she clings to Jesus, and she refuses to let go until she gets the blessing. What does Jesus say? How great is your faith? You're going to get exactly what you desire. You held on to me. You wrestled with me just like I wanted you to. I wanted you to receive the blessing. I wanted you to hold on to the promise, and you did it. So it is with us as well. This is how God strengthens you. He tests you. He throws things in your path, as we talked about last week. Whether it's kicking those props that you are lying out from under you, whether it's issues in family, with your spouse, with your children, with friends, co-workers, with your finances, whatever it is, whatever God brings your way, He's bringing you to a place where you must learn to rely on him and wrestle with him to get the blessing. And that primarily happens for us through prayer. We have to learn these things. So God tests us. And then we wrestle with him. And through those things, God is making you stronger in the faith. He's training you. He's maturing you. He's preparing you for all the battles that lie ahead. Battles that you have no conception of right now in the moment, but battles he's going to bring your way, but he wants to be prepared for them. He is making you strong and mighty in wisdom and discernment, just as he did Jacob. The fact is, yes, you often fail in these tests, right? The test comes and you doubt. Perhaps you get filled with fear. Maybe you even start to look to other gods because you feel overwhelmed. And maybe in frustration, you feel like God is playing with you a little too much, and you just quit. You give up the battle. Or maybe like Esau, you fight rather with, rather than fighting with God, you fight against him. Like Paul, you kick against those goats. You try to go the opposite way of what he wants you to do. You try to just reject the testing altogether and go your own way. And our Lord says you need to repent. The Bible says that though the righteous man falls seven times, the difference between him and the ungodly is that he gets up again. He rises up again. He repents, and he gets back into the battle, and he wrestles with his Lord once again. 
The Lord is showing you what it looks like to cling to him by faith, to hold on to his promises, no matter what adversity may come your way. Luther, in his commentary on Genesis 32, has this fantastic quotes. I'm going to read here in just a second. And it, for me, for the last three years, has been just a marvelous source of comfort. Luther says, it is as Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. If he should cast me into the depths of hell, and place me in the midst of devils, I would still believe that I would be saved because I have been baptized. I have been absolved. I have received the pledge of my salvation, the body and blood of the Lord in the supper. Therefore I want to see and hear nothing else, but I shall live and die in this faith, whether God or an angel or the devil says the contrary. Notice what Luther says, when you are wrestling with God, when these things come your way, where do you look? Where is your focus to be? And Luther says you look outside of yourself to God's objective promises given to you, to the promise given to you in your baptism, to the promise given to you in holy absolution, to the promise given to you in the Lord's Supper. So that as you wrestle, and maybe you have doubts, maybe you wonder what's going on, maybe God's against me, maybe he wants me to fail, Luther says, no, you look to the promises, you cling to those. Because when you're confident of who Jesus is, and what he's done for you, and his life, and his death, and resurrection, and ascension, when you know that was for you and your salvation, then you can wrestle with God and look to the promises. And you can be certain that God is doing it for your good, for your well-being, to strengthen you. He's doing it for your benefits. In fact, your strength in the wrestling match is in the very faith that God supplies to you through those outward objective means. God himself is strengthening you to wrestle with him. Because again, he's training you. He's maturing you. He's building you up. Because God wants you to wrestle with him. He wants you to press on. He wants you to keep clinging to him and not give up until you have the blessing. You see that in the Psalms. I mean, we sing it in several different ways, both in the introits, in the gradual, and the tract. We have that same kind of mentality. They're wrestling with God in prayer. They're battling with him. They're clinging to him and his promises and faith. A little bit later, Luther puts it this way. Or if he pretends that he is unfriendly and angry with you, inasmuch as he does not want you to hear you and help you, then say, Lord God, you have promised this in your word. Therefore, you will not change your promise. I have been baptized. I have been absolved. If you persistently urge and press on in this way, he will be conquered and say, let it be done unto you as you have petitioned, for you have the promise and the blessing. I have to give it, I have to give in to you. For a constant and persistent seeker and petitioner is the sweetest sacrifice. Think about how much hope that instills in us when we really believe that. That God is there wrestling with us because he wants to bless us and help us. He's not there to just crush you and defeat you and show you how weak and pathetic you are but he is there to bless you and raise you up, to cause you to mature and grow in the faith. So let's look at some of those blessings. 
Jacob, as we've already mentioned, he had his name changed. And there's several possible translations of it. We gave one already. One who wrestles with God, right? God's wrestler is another possible translation, which is kind of an amazing thing, right, to be called God's wrestler. can also be translated that God wrestles. That is, the one with whom God wrestles. Which, again, is quite a blessing that God would put his favor upon you to wrestle with you. We don't have to kind of pick one. All three are accurate descriptions of all those who are part of the true Israel of God. All those who, by faith, who are part of that Israel. Which means it's true for you. You are one who wrestles with God. You are God's God's wrestler. You are one with whom God wrestles in prayer. Thanks be to God for that. The other blessing that Jacob gets is kind of odd, because you may not look at the text and think that's a blessing. But he gets a bruised thigh. Jacob walks away with a permanent limb. But it's not a sign of defeat. It's a sign of his victory. It's a sign that he held on to God, clung to the promises, and received the blessing. And so it's kind of interesting. So as he's crossing over Penuel, it says, the sun rose on him as he limped on his hip. And you may just kind of pass over that, but it's quite significant. Throughout the Bible, the sun rising upon you is a sign of God's victory and blessing. We see this over and over again. It's kind of interesting. We have kind of a similar idea, at least we used to in older movies, right? Often the hero walks off after victory into the sunset, right? Same kind of idea. Jacob understood the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. That even though the heel would be bruised, that the head of the serpent would be crushed. I mean, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a bruised heel or a crushed head? Jacob walks away with a bruised heel, a symbol of what the coming seed, the coming Messiah, what would happen to him and his suffering and death on the cross. But in the end, it's the serpent's head that gets crushed. It's a serpent who gets defeated. God's people are victorious. You may yourself bear some wounds from these testings. But if you have wrestled with God and endured, then those wounds even become a sign of victory. A sign that God is with you and has chosen to bless you. If we step out to the bigger picture, not just us individually, but the church, the church too appears to kind of limp along, does she not? She limps along with this bruised heel, with her hip out of joints. And think about it. You look at the church from a worldly perspective, there's always infighting. There's always inadequate responses to the things going on around us. There's always some kind of problem. We looked at this even just recently in our own denomination with things going on with Dr. Gregory Schultz, what's going on at Concordia, Wisconsin, as just one recent example. And all three of these things were present. Infighting, inadequate response, and the reminder that there's problems, even in our own denomination. And that can be discouraging, especially when you look at Satan's troops, and they always seem to be really well organized. They seem to know what they're doing. They seem to be advancing. They seem to be quite bold and confident. And yet, from eternity's view, They are a headless organization. 
Satan's head has been crushed. They may appear to be winning. They may appear to have it all together. But in the end, they have no patience and they will have no perseverance. The church has Christ as its head. So even though the church limps along, the church limps along in a beautiful dance. Christ is at work in and through her. His kingdom will prevail, or as we sang last week, his kingdom ours remaineth. The kingdom of God will be victorious. Christ wins in the end. So Jacob's limp, though painful, is a constant reminder to him that he wrestled with God and he prevailed. He won the blessing. So that is for us, too, a sign of victory, a sign of eternal salvation, and a sign of the eventual victory of God's eternal kingdom. Which means it's a sign of your victory in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, too, because we get a glimpse. This is another part I think we kind of gloss over and miss. After all of this happens, Jacob goes to his brother, and the brother he thought wanted to kill him, he's reconciled with him. God indeed answered his prayer. God indeed blessed him. In fact, it appears from the text that not only has Esau reconciled with Jacob, he's reconciled with God as well. Because he even tells him, I don't need your gifts. God's given to me. God's provided for me. And he only takes the gifts when Jacob says, no, indeed, these are gifts from God. And Esau finally says, okay, then I'll take them. God indeed blessed him and answered his prayers even in ways that Jacob didn't even think were possible. He just wanted to survive. And God gave him so much more. So too, both in our Old Testament reading and our Gospel reading, I want you to understand that you have a great privilege. You have full and complete access to God to go with him and to wrestle with him in prayer. To learn patient faith and submissive wrestling. And so, as God tests you, you go running to him and you wrestle with him in prayer. And the promise here we have in our test is, as you wrestle with him in faith, even in weak faith, he is there strengthening you, he is there maturing you, he's there preparing your hands for battle, he is there answering your prayer. He indeed is with you. And we see from our text that by faith we prevail. And God indeed actually does what he promises and he blesses you. That's why Luther is so intent on driving us back to the means of grace and the word of God as where we need to look. Look to the word in sacraments. Look to the promises God has made you because he's going to come through and fulfill every last one of those promises. And at the end of that, you'll hear the same thing the Canaanite woman heard. O great is your faith, let it be done for you as you desire. God desires and wants to bless you. That's indeed why Christ came and suffered and died for you. That he might give you all the eternal blessings in Christ Jesus. Amen. Peace of God, who passes the honor to you. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ, Christ Jesus.